the electric chair. Kill all these zombies. Hey, welcome to the show once again. I'm your host, Midnight Corey, and this is The Electric Chair. Thank you for listening. You have my gratitude. Yes, sir. All right, what do we got this week? Well, of course, I'm on Stitcher. Uh, you want to get that app for your phone or your tablet or whatever fancy device that you got. Uh, also go to horrorpodcastingalliance.blogspot.com because I take part in that. And there are a lot of other fantastic podcasts there as well for you to listen to. And The Electric Chair 2D, the video show, is part of Spookshow.tv, which is really, really awesome. And you want to check them out. So go to Spookshow.tv. Um, I know I'm a little late in getting that next episode out of the video thing. Um, yeah, it just hasn't been possible for me to complete it yet. I have most of it done. And just a few little odds and ends to finish up there. I'm going to be drawing the uh, John F.D. Taff book giveaway, the winners for that, and uh, that's really fantastic. Speaking of uh, contests right now, um, I announced last week the Spine Giveaway Contest. It's the VHS uh, courtesy of Voltra Video, and I have three of those to give away, so you're going to want to enter. Just let me know you want to enter. You can email me at Corey at MidnightCorey.com or go to uh, the contact page on ElectricChairShow.com. You can send me a message and enter that way, or contact me on Facebook or Twitter, and all those fun links are up on my website, as you know. So, uh, yeah. Um, but, no, oh, oh, fun show, fun show this week. Let me tell you who I got on here, and then I have other, a few other things before we get to the interviews. Two guests this week. First of all, there's a man by the name of Peter Dukes, and he is one of the uh, operators, uh, guys in charge, of Dream Seekers Productions, which is really making some quality, quality stuff. Uh, they made a lot of shorts, and uh, it's just uh, some great stuff. So I got to talk to Peter Dukes. Now I was talking to Peter Dukes, and like I said, he's made a lot of shorts, and they're all really good. Well, the newest one he made is called The Beast, and it stars Bill Oberst Jr. Of course, you know Bill Oberst Jr. He has really taken the indie horror scene by storm recently, you know, in the past like year or so, um, especially in his portrayal of Abraham Lincoln in uh, the newer film, Abraham Lincoln vs. Zombies. And uh, so we got into talking about Bill and everything, and uh, I got to contact Mr. Oberst, and he will be my second guest on the show. So Peter Dukes from Dream Seekers Productions and... Uh, Actor Bill Oberst Jr. will be my guest this week, and uh, let me tell you, these interviews are great. Uh, I got I got really deep with Bill. It was uh, it was really awesome. So can't wait for you to hear all that. Um, also, my reading this week, you know, uh, is going to be some Lovecraft. You know, why not? I love Lovecraft. And I know there have been a couple people saying that they're interested in hearing me read some Lovecraft. So uh, this week, you're going to hear Dagon. Oh, how about that? Yeah, yeah. And then I got another, you know, few few more lined up down the road here because I love reading this stuff. So, uh, yeah, Tales from the Electric Chair is uh, like a regular thing now. I didn't know if I could do it every week, but, uh, you know, I'm going to try to do it as often as I can. It's a lot of fun. So, yeah, that's the good stuff. But that's not all the good stuff. Actually, I have, I have something more for you right here, right now, uh, before we go on. And, uh, you know, I talk about my friends at St. Martin's Press um, and, of course, uh, Thomas Dunn Books. Um, also, they, uh, they work together sometimes on some releases. Uh, they have been more than generous with uh, sending me copies of their new releases and things that are to be released. And, in fact, on episode 5 of The Electric Chair 2D, I reviewed um, a, a book called Harbor. 
by um, John Osvita Lindquist, um, who's the, the, the same guy that wrote uh, the original novel for uh, Let the Right One In. And uh, it was fantastic. And I also reviewed um, A Book of Horrors, edited by Stephen Jones. Um, so I gave both of those great reviews on the last video show. And if you haven't watched that, you're going to want to. It was really cool. But uh, since then, St. Martin's, Thomas Dunn uh, has sent me a lot of other books. And they've sent me so many so quickly, I just haven't been able to read them all. So I am in the middle of the first one. And the other three I'm going to definitely uh, talk about here and recommend for you, um, because, uh, you know, I, I really think that you should pick these up. Everything that I've read from these guys has been fantastic. And uh, the one I'm on right now, in the middle of, is called Little Star. It was just released October 2nd. This is another novel by Lindquist. And uh, let me tell you what, this thing is good. I don't want to put it down. It's absolutely enthralling. It's, it's engaging. It's interesting. It's original. Um, I'm really, really digging the characters. Um, of course, we have this this European setting, which is very new and a little bit exotic to me. So, uh, you know, it's the whole Swedish thing going on here. And I don't know a lot about that culture. I know a little bit about it, but I'm, the, you know, I'm an American. You know, all I care about is America. <laughs> yeah. The rest of the world barely exists, right? <laughs> Now, of course, I'm being tongue-in-cheek, but, um, you know, so this is this has this whole exotic thing going on. Same thing for Harbor. Harbor was the same way, you know, a different setting, and I really, really dig that. Um, but um, Lindquist is a great, great writer, um, and I, I'm just really, really totally into Little Star. Um, so let me let me read you what, uh, um, this is from Thomas Dunn Books here, um, and I, I really appreciate this. It says, Lennart Sedestrom was walking in the forest when he saw it. A baby girl lying in a plastic bag, left for dead. Horrified, he administers CPR. But what happened next changed his life forever. She is revived, and her first breath was something astounding. A perfect musical note. For an aging singer, this incredible child was irresistible, and Leonard could only hurry her home and take her into his care. Fearing the watchful eyes of the authorities, Leonard decided to hide his foundling daughter from view. So he and his wife kept her in their basement. As she grows, Leonard's son, Jerry, teaches the child music. Deciding he can't let her uncommonly beautiful voice go unheard, Jerry enters her in a singing competition. Miles away, another young girl sees the performance on television. However, when the two girls meet, a terrible force is ignited that catapults this duo to a horrifying place that no one thought possible. Did the person who abandoned her in the woods know something terrible lay in her future? Or was it just a trick of fate to turn the little star into the most terrifying thing imaginable? In Little Star, Lindquist's fourth masterpiece, he effortlessly ratches up the tension until the story reaches its terrible conclusion. In so doing, he confirms his place as the undisputed new king of horror. Oh yeah. And this is getting great reviews as well. Of course, like I said in the video show, Lindquist is being called... Um, this Swedish Stephen King or something like that. What are they saying? Something, uh, you know, uh, something like that. Yeah, Swedish uh, Stephen King. So, I, you know, hey, how about that? It, it's fantastic, though. I, I'm, I'm enjoying everything that I've read of his. Um, definitely a great author. Um, man. Um, the next up, uh, what are we going to talk about here? Let's talk about Scarlet by Thomas Emson. Now, this is also courtesy of Thomas Dunn. Uh, this is in paperback. It was just released October 2nd. Now, I haven't read this yet, but this sounds really, really cool. Fear grips London as dozens of people die after taking a sinister new drug called Scarlet. But that's only the beginning. 48 hours later, the dead partiers wake up and begin butchering the living for their blood. 
Soon, London realizes the terror stalking the streets. Vampires. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Scarlet is spelled S-K-A-R-L-E-T. Not a C, it's a K. Uh, Thomas Empson, again, is the author. Uh, he's a Welsh writer, um, and uh, this is his second English novel. Um, and this sounds really, really good. It's vampires brought about by this new drug. Uh, which is kind of an interesting new concept, so I can't wait to start reading that one. Uh, next is a sequel, actually, and this was just released October 2nd, so all these right now are on your new release shelf in your bookstores or, you know, whatever. So, uh, of course, Thomas Dunn um, and St. Martin's Press, uh, both involved in this uh, publication. But this is called, This Book is Full of Spiders. Seriously, dude, don't touch it. Uh, great title. This is by David Wong. Now, of course, this was a sequel to uh, a, a book that uh, Wong wrote called John Dies at the End. It was uh, originally released as an online serial where it received more than 70,000 downloads. It was described as a horror-tacular, an epic of uh, spectacular horror that combined the laugh-out-loud humor of the best R-rated comedy with the darkest terror of H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, the book went on. Uh, of course, John Dies at the End went on to sell an additional 100,000 copies and other formats. And uh, isn't that a movie? Right? Yeah, I think they made it into a movie. Um, so in, uh, in the novel John Dies at the End, a rift opened between worlds and unspeakable evil pours into ours, helped by a mysterious substance dubbed soy sauce that John Smith and David Wong, not their real names, discovered in their hometown, which is undisclosed. Um, for our unlikely heroes, battling shadowy figures and gruesome hybrid monsters, like a seven-legged beast wearing a blonde wig, happens as often as eating Taco Bell bean burritos. Um, multiple times a day. Armed with a boombox, playing power ballads and more than a few beers, John and Dave must face these horrors because they're the only ones who've tried the sauce who are still alive. Oh yeah. So this is the sequel. Um, and uh, let's see, when, when this one opens, we find John and David again embroiled in a series of horrifying yet mind-bogglingly ridiculous events caused primarily by their own gross incompetence. The guys find that books and movies about zombies may have triggered a zombie apocalypse, despite the complete lack of zombies in the world. <laughs> As they race against the clock to protect humanity from its own paranoia, they must ask themselves, who are the real monsters? Actually, that would be the shape-shifting horrors, secretly taking over the world behind the scenes that, in the end, make John and Dave kind of wish it had been zombies after all. This book is hilarious, terrifying, engaging, and wrenching, and it takes readers for a wild ride with two slackers from the Midwest who really have better things to do with their time than prevent the apocalypse. <laughs> this book is full of spiders. Seriously, dude, don't touch it. Wow, that sounds amazing. That sounds amazing. I can't wait to get, get with this one, too. Another zombie book. Um, uh, and this one is coming out here in the next couple weeks. October 16th, mark it down. What's your bookstores for a book called Portland Town, A Tale of the Oregon Wilds? Um, of course, this is a courtesy of St. Martin's Press. And another one I cannot wait to read. You know, and I, I've just decided not to sleep anymore. This is, you know, sleep is worthless. I got so much good stuff here to read that I, I don't need to sleep. I just want to entertain myself. Um, so, uh, welcome to Portland Town, where no secret is safe. Not even those buried beneath six feet of Oregon mud. At the start of Portland Town, a tale of the Oregon wilds, Joseph Wilde isn't afraid of the past, but he knows some truths are better left unspoken. However, when his father-in-law's grave digging awakens more than just ghosts, Joseph invites him into their home, hoping a booming metropolis and two curious grand twins will be enough to keep the former marshal out of trouble. 
Unfortunately, the old man's past soon follows, unleashing a terrible storm on a city already knee-deep in floodwaters. As the dead mysteriously begin to rise, the wilds must find the truth before an unspeakable evil can spread across the West and beyond. Portland Town is a supernatural western a la Stephen King's Dark Tower, where a family must battle with not only an outlaw, but his brethren who have risen from the grave. Oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, this one is by... Oh, who's this by? I forgot to mention the author. This is uh, Rob DeBoard. Oh, yes, Mr. DeBoard. Now, um... Let's see. This is uh, this is a second book. It looks like or a third book. I don't know. Um, and uh, this is the first zombie book. So uh, this is really interesting. And that that sounds fantastic. Kind of a zombie supernatural western thing going on there. Thank you again to St. Martin's Press. Uh, you need to go pick these up. Like I said, everything I've read of theirs has been nothing but of the utmost quality. And with authors like Lindquist, David Wong, uh, all these guys, man, they they're top notch. So thank you to St. Martin's and Thomas Dunn. And uh, I'll have links up where you can get all of these in my show notes. There you go. Well, that's enough reading to keep you guys busy for a, a while. It's certainly going to keep me busy for a while. And um, so, hey, let's get on. Let's talk with um, Peter Dukes from Dream Seekers Productions. And then right after that, you're going to hear from actor Bill Oberst Jr. Oh, oh my God. What's wrong with him? He's dead. That's what's wrong with him. He's the gun. Oh, God. Gary's gun. My special guest this week is a really exciting filmmaker, and it's a guy I've gotten to know here over the past couple months and see a lot of his company's work, and I'm really, really impressed. From Dream Seekers Productions, I welcome Peter Dukes. Peter, thank you for talking with me. Thank you, Corey. It's a pleasure to be here. Wow. Well, Dream Seekers, man, really, really exciting. Um, we, you know, we've kind of been chatting on Twitter a little bit, and uh, mm -hmm. I'm really glad that... Uh, uh, I got to find your website because a lot of exciting things going on. So what is what is Dream Seekers? Just give everyone a, a feel for what you do. Well, uh, Dream Seekers is, is kind of the, uh, uh, the, the end game to uh, um, an idea my sister and I had many years ago as kids when we really started getting into storytelling and, and all that kind of stuff. And and um, you know, we we started making a lot of movies back in the day, and and um, and um, short stories and all sorts of things like that. And and we never really had a place to kind of centralize everything. And then um, you know, along came the internet, and uh, along came uh, the technology to really kind of put all this stuff together in a place that was easy not only for us to you know organize everything, but for other people to start actually watching what we do. And in in 2005, we actually made it official. We founded the actual company and. Gave it a website, and and um, since then, that's really you know where we've put all our stuff and where we've attracted all our viewers back to. And and um, you know, in the last couple of years, we've you know even less than that really, we've started expanding into the social social media realm. And and um, same thing there. It's just a place to keep everything integrated and to kind of just you know do what we love and actually have a place to direct people to to see what we do. Yeah, and that's awesome. It's obvious that you love what you're doing here. Um, Very much so. Yeah, yeah, because I really appreciate that, you know, I got on the website and I was I was reading about you and learning about you and you have a list of your projects and everything and uh, what I thought was really, really cool is you can watch a lot of these shorts right online. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so what was your philosophy? I mean, you know, it's, is it kind of tempting to start selling DVDs, you know, as opposed to just offering it online for free? 
Was it was that something that uh, a That's major not decision? So much, or? Um, no, we we we're not so much into. I mean, not that it's entirely our choice, but you know, there's not a whole lot of money in short films and short animation. So money at this point isn't really one of our interests. There are there are sites out there nowadays that that um, you can you know put your product onto and it gets you know a dime per view or or whatever it is but really we do it just because again we love it but also it allows us to kind of you know put the pieces in place to go into bigger and better things you know the more of these pictures we do the 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 more talented the cast we um, can attach and the the more professional the crews we can attach and, and even get interest from outside investors we're not paying for everything ourselves and and um, you know, along for doing it, doing it because we enjoy doing it and we enjoy telling stories. We also, you know, continue to kind of challenge ourselves and hone our craft, and you know, really find out what our strengths are and what our weaknesses are, so that eventually, you know, it will allow us to kind of push through and um, you know take this to the next level. Which is to say, it doesn't have to be features, but it, but it can certainly put us in a realm where we're getting paid to do what we love, as opposed to everything being out of pocket and doing it on the side, like you know most everyone else out here in Los Angeles. But that's really our our, our main goal at this point is to just keep doing um, what we enjoy, get better at at what we do, and eventually put ourselves in a position to to, to push through. And at that point. You know, sure, if we can make some money off of it, great. But that's really not one of our priorities right now. Excellent. Excellent. It's really interesting. First of all, uh, I'd love to see a feature out of you. I would love to. Because if you can, man, tell a story in a feature the way you can tell a story in these shorts, man, it's going to blow everyone away. I guarantee it. Um, We've been close. We've been close a couple of times. You know, we we learned a long time ago. to really keep a uh, to stay kind of even keel when something comes up, you know, one of our scripts gets optioned or, you know, um, some kind of carrots dangled in front of us. We've come very close to features before, and, and we just learned to not get too excited uh, and just let it play out. So, you know, if it's good news or it's not so good news, you just kind of, you know, you kind of have to roll with with, with whatever comes. So I, we're close. You know, within the next couple of years, I think we're either going to make the jump through, or it's just not going to happen. I mean, it's just kind of a funny town like that. So, yeah. um, you know, we'll, we'll kind of have to see uh, see see how it goes. Wow. Well, I'll be keeping my fingers crossed for that because I'd love to see it. So will we. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. Now, so I get uh, I get kind of the impression here that uh, you're kind of what are you self financing these are you are you getting backers how how do you how do you get cash well for these films? we've um, we've financed everything to date all on our own um, which caused us of course to go um, certainly independent but but often you know full on guerrilla style you know no permits shooting a ton of material very quickly with very little resources and you just kind of learn to maximize your resources and we've gotten very good at that you know um as good as we can get um you know for instance the last film we did was a short werewolf film called the beast and we shot the whole thing in one night for 700 bucks holy cow Um, (laughs) <laughs> but we've gotten into a position where we can make it look like it's a lot more than that. I mean, no one's going to mistake it for poltergeist or anything crazy, but most people aren't going to realize just how low budget it was. And, and you know, in and, and, and doing so, um, we've learned to cut a lot of corners and to become very streamlined and efficient, which will, you know, hopefully pay off when we do features. You know, we'll know how to really get it done 
um, while being able to deliver something on time and on or under budget and, and all the rest like that. But, um, you know, for sure, it's, it's really strengthened um, what it is that we have to offer. It is so hard to believe that you made the beast on one night for 700 bucks. I mean, I'm just kind of reeling from that because it yeah. is amazing. That I loved that. Um, Thank you. You know the um, everything about it to me was so strong. Um, of course, you know seeing seeing Bill Oberst Jr. Uh, you oh, know, yeah. of course, up there. You know, uh, that's uh, you know a big name uh, to a lot of us, and uh, that was great. And even the acting all around. You know, there are just three characters in the film, but uh, they were all very strong. And uh, yeah, we got very lucky. We we it was all a timing thing with Bill. I'd 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 been in contact loosely with him over the years and. And he'd kind of gone off my radar for a bit there, and, and, and then one day I was watching, I believe it was the History Channel, and something came on called Sherman's March. Uh, and it basically was one of those History Channel period pieces where they're telling a story of, in this case, it was, you know, uh, someone involved with the Civil War. I'm not, I'm not a historian, but Bill was playing the lead. He was playing uh, General Sherman. And he was so good in just this kind of low-budget History Channel show that I was like, oh, my God, that's Bill Obus Jr. I, I've spoken with that guy before, and I reached out to him in regards to this, and he loved the script and came in for a reading, and, you know, the, the rest is history. But, I mean, it was all timing because I don't know if I could – if I could get him now, he's a super cool guy, but he's really blown up in the last 18 months. Oh, and yeah, yeah. Very much so, and, 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 and really it's difficult to get people like that, uh, you know, to do, you know, projects like this for no pay, just kind of all crazy. And, and, and that certainly was, uh, was, was just one of those super guerrilla-style shoots, you know. I mean, it was hmm. undermanned, you know, <laughs> under equipmented everything and and there's often times where even the actors are having to do a little pa work which which bill did and he was just hmm. super cool and cooperative and we were we were very lucky to, to get him along with everybody else wow wow yeah truly amazing i mean every mm-hmm. piece of that i i just thought was great um you know from it just the production as a whole you know like i said the acting was awesome i love the scores so you know so many of the shorts i'm watching have really really great scores very effective uh, mm-hmm. very full and uh, i know that uh, you you do a lot of the edit i'm doing pretty much all of the editing on mm-hmm. uh, on many of these so um i know that you pay very close attention to how music is used how sound is used uh, the cinematography um how much do you have to do with with the cinematography the, the camera work in this uh, it varies from project to project. Um, my last couple of pictures, including The Beast, was shot by a guy named John Snedden, who's a really talented up-and-coming DP who, like everyone else who tends to work with us, he's very cool. You know, he's kind of investing us in us for the future. You know, he doesn't get any money out of it. He often gets his butt kicked on our shoots, but he can take <clears throat> very little resources, a couple of lights here and there, and he can really make it work. And he did that with The Beast. We had couple of lights and when you're shooting at night certainly exterior that's a lot to ask from your dp and 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 he made that work um i usually uh leave my camera operating the dps um that's Mm. not always the case but um and certainly i'm involved in all the other stuff editing and 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 like you said the music music's really really important to me and you know it's just one of those select areas where you can up the production value of your picture if if it's kind of limited elsewhere you know if you don't have a lot of money for special effects or lights or you know props or whatever it is 
certainly music is one of those areas where you can make up for it. And I work hard to kind of put together a list of guys out there who are, you know, A, super talented and just have that cinematic quality, but B, are willing to work because they like what we do. And, you know, and, and the, the, the kid who did the music for The Beast was a super energetic, nice kid named um, Giona uh, Ostinelli. And he did a great job, and I would work with him again, you know. So, so we, we definitely pride ourselves in bringing in and t- kind of finding, you know, hidden gems in the composer world out there, you know, before they kind of strike it big. Awesome. Yeah, you yeah. did a great job with that, and I, just, I really yeah. appreciated that because it's funny. That's one of the, the – actually, the first things that you'll learn in film production um, or any kind of, you know, visual, you know, even video production, things like that is, amazingly enough – paying attention to having good solid audio uh you know to to everything is key even if your your visual aspect is a little subpar you know you can Mm -hmm. have kind of a shaky visually film but if you really amp things up with the audio you pay real close attention absolutely it'll it'll just make a huge difference and it'll take something that's okay and make it really good and all those pieces become all those pieces, all the little things become so important. And it's one thing if you can have, you can get away with a lot of things if you're just going to be uh, putting a film out online or, or to a television deal or to a small festival maybe. But if you get into a big festival or certainly your your film's going to be screening on a large screen with a real audio system, it makes a huge difference. And, and really, I have yet to make a film or to have the financing to, to make a film with absolute, top-notch sound yet i'd like to get there and on, and on my next film I, I think we'll we'll be there but on the beast it's basically me doing all my own sound design and and, and i do a i would say approaching competent but it's certainly not top-notch i mean it, it, it's 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 something that we we make serviceable but you're absolutely right i mean really good sound quality makes a very big difference and it can be a killer in a lot of films, if if it's if it's ignored or or or, or botched, you know, and, and that's the case in a lot of areas of independent filmmaking. So, you're right on. Yeah, and uh, please don't sell yourself short because you are far beyond competent in this regard. <laughs> I mean, this it, it was really really effective, and uh, you know what you're doing. So, uh, Thank you. I, I appreciated that. Of course, you know, in the Beast, you had a great sense of dread. And, um, you know, watching this and um, another one of your shorts that I really enjoyed, actually, I, I enjoyed them all, but uh, especially uh, the horror ones, because you're very diverse. You don't only do horror. You do a lot more than that. We but, like it um, all, yeah. Um, uh, the other one that I really, really dug was They Watch. Um, the, yeah, it was, it yeah. was. I love how you use story and dread yeah. and just little things. It, it creeped me out, man. I mean, it, yeah, it really did. Yeah, yeah. They Watch is one of my favorites, and it's got it's, it has received um, not the least, but but certainly you know among the least attention of all my films. It's just not a lot of people have seen it. It's just huh. believe it or not, black and white. A lot of um, places won't accept it, or or just don't have any interest because it's black and white, which which I think is a mistake. I'm just a sucker for black and white. Oh yeah. Um, anyhow, They Watch is is one of my favorites. It's it was it was kind of my ode to the old twilight zone series and something that that is certainly for economical reasons but also for thematic reasons i wanted to keep it very simple basically just two guys in a room where the subtext and the implications were what created all the dread you didn't even really have to see anything or 
or anything like that to kind of get pulled into it. And, and I, I was really, really happy with the way that film turned out. And that was another uber <laughs> low-budget deal. That one I shot in a day for, I think... I think it, I think the whole budget was maybe two hundred dollars, something oh like gosh. that. Oh my gosh! But again, we worked real hard to cover up for that, and we had great actors come in, and in mm. um, you know Greg Travis and um, um, John Michael Herndon, and uh, and um, yeah, we really wanted to kind of you know say thank you to those old Twilight Zone series, and I think we pulled it off just kind of an old-fashioned um, horror story and this kind of a psychological ghost story. And I'm glad you pointed it out because most people don't. Yeah. I really dug it. You know, I was even thinking a little bit of Hitchcock in there, you know, cause you had, yeah, you, yeah, you're like, too. what did these guys do? And I, I don't want to give a lot of it away cause you can get onto your website and watch this. And I think everybody out there should, but, uh, I mean, there is a past, I mean, you're, you're weaving this whole backstory within just a few lines, you know, within this, this dialogue, you know, you got my mind going, and I'm I'm thinking, what happened in the past? What's the dynamic here between these guys? And and just, I I love you know, you're a filmmaker, mm-hmm. but it's it's kind of like first and foremost, you're a storyteller, oh, and yeah, you, you're just happening you know to manifest that in mm-hmm. filmmaking, uh, which is fantastic. I I just love how you can tell a story, and you don't give me too much, you don't give me too little, you know, especially they watch you gave me just enough. Man, it's a fine really balance. It. Mm-hmm. It's a fine balance. To me, I, I don't really like to spoon feed my audiences. I, I subtlety is important to me in, in atmosphere and all that stuff. And I really work hard to create something that forces the audience to pay attention and to get engaged and to really think about what it is that they're that they're watching. And, and they watch is one of the best examples of my films that have done that. Sometimes I might even push it too far, but I think I got it just about right with they watch. And I, and, and the way I tell my stories is. Inspired from a lot of old horror films, but, you know, really it, it, it comes from a literature background. I'm a huge fan of some great horror literature that has really had an influence on how I, on how I craft, you know, the films. And I think, mm. you know, when you look back at, like, Mary Shelley or Shirley Jackson or Henry James or H.P. Lovecraft, some of these guys mm. that created really interesting horror literature – it's just told in a very subtle, interesting way. You know, it's not in your face. It's not, you know, slasher dasher. Not that that's a bad thing. But it, anyway, it's a very specific way of telling a story that's really rubbed off on me. And I'm glad you enjoyed it because that's what I enjoy. Yeah. I mean, so much, you know, horror for me, it's in your mind. You know, it's the things yeah. that you make me imagine, you know, in my head. And that's what really scares me. And uh, yeah. thank you so much for respecting the audience enough to realize that, uh, you know, we fill in a lot of the blanks. We make up a lot of the stories and, and try to figure things out ourselves rather than, you know, like you said, spoon feeding us, you know, everything along the yeah. way, not giving us, you know, you know um, just spelling yeah, everything out. I think audiences today um, have gotten so used to that that they don't, not all of them, but most of um, the younger generation don't realize that there's so much more out there. I have a tremendous amount of respect for, um, you know, the audience and, and how much they can bring out of a film. And I have a tremendous amount of respect in this case for, um, you know, the history of horror and what a rich genre it is. And I think we can just, the least I can do, you know, uh, while I'm <laughs> putting myself to all this trouble is just to, to aspire to make something that's just interesting and, and, and does, you know, allow the audience to, you know, 
uh, engage in this, and like you said, to, to fill in some of the blanks themselves. Certainly would they watch, I never really say what happened. In my own mind, I know what happened, but I really kind of leave it up to the viewer. I give them just enough little keys here and there to put together their own idea of it, and uh, you know, I, I think that that's fitting to the story, and I think... You know, why not? It's funner for an audience to really kind of be able to participate in the film um, rather than to have it all kind of, you know, thrown on top of them. So oh, yeah. that's, that's the way I do it, and, uh, and uh, it's what I, you know, try to do with all my films. Yeah, and this, this is the kind of thing, you'll see this at a festival, you know, some kind of convention or something, mm-hmm. and then you and your buddies, you go out to the bar afterwards, and you're just sitting around, and you're like, okay, what was this guy up to? What do you think? You know, and, and everybody goes around and you're just talking about mm-hmm. it and you're like, well, I think they did that. Well, no, what are you thinking? I, I think that this is what actually happened. And it just garners a lot of discussion. You have a lot of fun with it. You know, well, whereas, you know, you, if you see something like a, you know, a saw or something like that, I mean, how much mm-hmm. real discussion and not taking anything away from that, uh, it's just completely different. But how much discussion and, and fun does that garner oh, after the fact? You know, it just, yeah. it's not the same. Uh, I mean, to me, the funnest thing that can happen to me if I were to be able to watch my film, sit in a theater and watch my film while other people uh, are watching and, and, and to be a fly on the wall afterwards is if they all have different opinions and took something different out of it, that's the best to me. If they're all taking something slightly different out of there depending on, you know, whatever their background is or, or, or you know, little things here and there that, that they picked up and, and for a film to last is, and, and to continue discussion and things like that is the ultimate goal. I mean, you've got the classics like, um, well, you pick any of them. Look at Jaws. Jaws was so unsettling that it scares people out of the water today. Oh, man. You know, so if you can make a film that, that lives on, that, that's a dream come true to someone like me. I am not so much interested in making films where you can enjoy them. You have your popcorn and you leave. And the moment you hit your car, you can hardly remember really what it is you saw anymore. Um, so, you know, certainly if it can uh, uh, establish discussion and, you know, uh, difference of opinions and things like that, uh, so much the better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as our time kind of runs down here tonight, man, um, it's really exciting that I got to talk with you, and I encourage sure. everybody to go out to dreamseekersprods.com. And, of course, you know, I'll have the link up on my website, so you can easily click on it. But uh, right now you should go there and, and uh, watch some of these films. You go to the uh, projects page, and there's a big list of things you've done. And, um, man, it's, uh, it's really a great experience. Uh, these, you know, the shorts run, you know, they're roughly 10 minutes or so and you can short watch a whole bunch impact. of them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Always short and high impact. You don't want to go into the dead man zone of like 20 plus minutes if you can avoid it. <laughs> well, listen, yeah. I, I very much appreciate you having me. I'd love to come on again and, and keep your, uh, eyes on our pages. We've got some crazy ones coming down the pipeline. Absolutely. I can't wait to see what you do next, Peter. Um, thanks. This has been a great time. And uh, let's definitely, definitely do this again, man. All right, thank you. Thank you. Do you still believe it impossible we exist? You didn't actually think you were the only inhabited planet in the universe. How can any race be so stupid? Well, you just heard me speaking with Peter Dukes from uh, Dream Seekers Productions, fantastic guy. One of the films of his that we discussed was The Beast. And part of the reason that I love The Beast so much was because of the acting and, of course, Bill O'Burst Jr., it really stole the show there, and I'm really honored right now to be talking with Mr. Oberst right now. Bill, welcome to the show, and thank you for talking with me tonight. Corey, thank you. I was kind of jazzed to get your uh, invitation to be on the show. Wow. Um, 
Peter Dukes is, uh, he's, you know, to me, he's what cinema was made for. I mean, there are the big uh, popcorn movies, you know, the multi-million dollar, which is a huge corporation. But cinema started with somebody saying, hey, we can capture stories and we can make a move. Um, and it was just little people making up ideas. And, you know, Peter took 400 bucks and went to the woods with a bunch of us and made a little werewolf short that's gotten great response. I, I think it's wonderful that in cinema you can dream a dream and with just a little bit of money and some dedicated people, you can create moving picture stories. It's, it still gives me chills to be a part of it. Mm, yeah. And uh, again, you were amazing in it. Just your acting ability, man, you, you take whatever role that you're given and you just go with it. You give it your all, you know, no matter, you know, again, you donated your time for the beast. Um, and you're involved in a lot of indie projects and I'm sure with varying amounts of, of, um, you know, compensation, for what you do. Uh, but uh, no matter what, you're always giving it your 100%. And I love, I've, I've seen um, and, you know, heard a lot of your interviews. And uh, you always talk about, you know, um, who did you quote about saying, you know, the, the, the movie that you're in may not be the, the best. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of summarizing or something. <laughs> it was, uh, but you give it Tarantino, your all. Yeah, Tarantino. Tarantino made Jackie yeah. Brown. That's right. And um, this, I need to look up on IMD and see who the dude was. But it was some guy that he hired. And people say, what are you hiring this guy for? All his movies are crap. And Tarantino said, look, all of his movies aren't good, but he's always good in them. Mm, I love that. I love that. And that's, that's so so true for you. Although, I mean, the movies that you're making aren't crap. I mean, I can't, I can't call them that by any means. You haven't seen them all, have you? Well, <laughs> there are only like a million of them out there. I mean, oh, oh my God, Corey. I went to IMDb and it's like a mile long. I mean, Corey, wow. Corey, my motto is just keep flinging shit against the wall. Something will stick. <laughs> I love it. And I have done uh. bad performances before. I did a feature lead that I, I would cry before I would watch it again. I would have my fingernails pulled out before I would watch it again. It was a complete and utter failure. So you give your all and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Wow. The role has to be right for you. That Because cinema is a a visual medium, so there can't be a disconnect between your face and the role you're playing mm. because we're programmed to see certain faces certain ways. Mm. And my face has a little, it's very uneven. Uh, there's a lot of hyperpigmentation. The texture is weird. The symmetry is off. My nose is broken from boxing. I got these piercing blue eyes. I got a German high cheekbones. So my face looks a little weird and a little disconcerting and disturbing or menacing. And if, if a role that I'm doing doesn't have some of that in it, then it's hard to pull it off. So, yeah, you fa oh. your face has to match your, your role somewhat. Yeah, but you still manage. I mean, you, you play a lot of freaky dudes. I mean, a lot of, of creepy characters. And, of course, you know, you're looking to take this lollipop, of course, I think, which, which summarizes kind of your look and you, I think, taking full advantage of your your natural physical features it was but, great because i didn't have to say one word it was 90 seconds of silence and i love silent performances oh yeah yeah you when just... i get when i get lines and scripts i keep wanting to cut them i go to the directors and i say <laughs> do we have to have this line can you cut this because the person who speaks the least in a movie is the one that you remember the most mm, man and you do it so well man you say you say a million words and just like one look that you can give the camera and the you know tilt your head just a little bit and you know every basically everything I saw and take take this lollipop was uh, man so much better than speaking anything at all. Um, Looks are better than words. Yes, yes, but you know I was saying you still managed to pull off you know quote normal characters 
from time to time, which which is amazing because, um, you know, like like a much less threatening uh, Abraham Lincoln, you know, which, again, That's is true. a unique look. But he's not creepy. He's not he's not threatening at all. Yeah, he has a very unique physical stature, you know, a unique look. But, you know, he's a fairly normal guy. So, you know, you go from, you know, you're, you're just very diverse. You know, you're not typecast. Well, I, I, I try to be, and I did a Hallmark movie where I played an Amish father, and he was a stern mm-hmm. Amish father, and it worked for that reason. The the performance that I'm talking about that I can't bear to watch ever again, <laughs> uh, I would rather die, I think, is A Haunting in Salem, which I did. I've done five movies for the asylum. Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies was one. But I was the lead in A Haunting in Salem, and I was a hero sheriff with a beautiful family. And I spent much of the time sharing variations of the line, there's something in this house. There's something going on in this house. <laughs> Honey, how are the kids? And when my face says that, it's just a weird disconnect. And, um, hmm. oh, what was my favorite review? There were so many of them. One said, best acting honors go to the poor girl who played Ober's wife because she had to make out with Harry Potter's Dobby. <laughs> so you can't get wow. pissed at that kind of stuff. You have yeah. to laugh at it. And I thought, okay, what this dude is referring to is the obvious visual disconnect. Hmm. Yeah. So that's when I decided I will. I can play regular like people again, but they've got to have a strong, distinctive look. It can't look like the rest of my family is really pretty. And why am I not? Yeah. Because I have distinctive features. So, yeah. And Lincoln was but ugly. Even in his day, people, somebody came up to him and said, uh, Lincoln, you're two-faced. And he said, my God, if I was two-faced, you think I'd be wearing this one? <laughs> I can relate. Oh, wow. Wow. But do you, what I love about you is that uh, with these distinct features, um, you know, you really you take advantage of them. And you're actually very proud of, I think, the, the crazy great opportunities that you get because of them. Um, it's true. In what other genre is it an asset to have a, a, a face like this? In what other genre is it an asset to have a uh, if you Google creepy torso actor, I'm the first result. <laughs> Only in the horror sort of darker genres is this a good thing. People are like, Bill, your body looks like a living cadaver. And I'm thinking, you know, in the romantic comedy genre, that would not be a good thing. Right, right. <laughs> but so the water, in the waters that I swim in, when people say, my God, you look like a walking corpse, it's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, and you, you know you know what I love is uh, on your website, on if you go to billoburst.com, um, there's a great little um, kind of presentation there that you can take part of called Anatomy of Fear. And yeah. it really, um, you know, kind of encapsulates every, everything we've been talking about here. And I just love it because you kind of click through and it gives sort of your philosophy on, uh, you know, sort of your physical char- characteristics and why they work. In and, the different and, films and the genre, it's it's fantastic. Thank you. I, I um I've debated about putting Anatomy of Fear on there, but I really wanted to play up the 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 unusual body thing because body horror has a long and distinguished tradition, which goes all the way back to Lon Chaney. We're not comfortable with human bodies that are not perfect. Mm. Um, and I've had this discussion before with people. I said, "What if you really fell in love with somebody, a girl or a guy, and and?" They were just wonderful, but they were missing a limb. And when you say that, you see people's face change because they're thinking, is that too weird? Is that too weird for me? And and although I have all of my limbs, I do have a really freaky 
body in this deformed rib cage and things. And it it we're we're, we're very I don't want to say shallow, but we're very very visual creatures. Mm. So it's really easy to make us say ooh when we see a body that is we perceive as in any way not normal. Wow. And in my case, it's it, the the sort of leanness and boniness re, in the right role reminds people of death. Mm. And uh, so it's it and it's yeah it makes them say ooh. <laughs> That's it, Corey. It makes them say you. Oh, well, that's too bad. I feel bad. I mean, it, you know, is this is this a real life? Th- I mean, did, did, you know, do you have? I mean, I'm I'm getting a little personal here, and I, I'm you know, yeah. I apologize. But is is this something uh, that, like a personal thing for you? You know, as far as you know, relationships and stuff. Do you get a lot of oh, that no. kind of in real life? Because you know, no, absolutely not. Um, the lighting is key. The role is key. Mm. Uh, when I meet people and I talk to them, a lot of times, if I'm not doing my my thing, my scary thing, they'll say, you're not scary at all. (laughs) And then I'll do my scary thing and they go, Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have to remember sometime. Oh, I'm supposed to be scary. Yeah. And that's, that's what is is so weird for me right now because uh, I, of course I've watched a lot of your work. Uh, I've um, listened to and seen a lot of your interviews and you know, you are on a personal level in real life. You're one of the nicest guys out there. I mean, you know, you're just, you know, you're very, very cool, uh, very mellow and everything. And then you watch something like Take This Lollipop or, you know, the, a lot of the other uh, horror that you've done. You're like, oh, my God, this guy is twisted. You know, you, you can just you can give that uh, sort of impression in your acting. And then I talk to you and you're just like you're you're so cool. You're so down to earth. And because um, I just uh, if yeah. I lower my voice a little look into your eyes and say, Corey, I'm really sorry that I have to do this. Then it gets scarier. You totally just gave me goosebumps because all I, I could think you, of, all I could think of was though, take this lollipop and, <laughs> oh my God. I, yeah. I know actors who say, oh, they play these violent roles, but they're like, oh no, dude, I'm not violent at all. Yes, you are. <laughs> if you're good at something and the camera, the camera doesn't lie, if, if I'm throwing a girl around onto the bed and licking her face and slapping her, even though God knows I don't do that stuff in real life, it's in me. If it wasn't in mm. me, I couldn't do it convincingly, and the camera would say, that's a lie. But instead, when I do that violent shit, that's when people say, that looks real. And the reason it looks real is because somewhere inside of me, I've got that darkness. Wow. I just keep it boxed up. Well, it's kind of like a therapy then for you. It's kind of like a safe release. Then sure is. For it feels sort fantastic. Of these, these dark tendencies that you know you may you know be able to control in real life and you know keep boxed up but this almost gives you that opportunity to kind of let them unleashed a little bit it does it does and and i've i've talked about this with other horror actors who experience this when you're in the middle of a scene you're nowhere else you're completely focused and there's a pure energy that's there um, this movie that I just did, Children of Sorrow, which is coming out later this year, I played a cult leader. And I isolated myself from everybody. I didn't go on the cell phone, no internet, nothing for these three weeks. I just lived in this character. And I was so ready to leave him by the end of the shoot. I wanted to leave him behind and never see him again, but I had experienced him fully. And it was a catharsis. I felt, when I left the desert after that shoot, I felt clean and refreshed. Hmm. So I almost think that humans... We need that sort of catharsis and maybe a good uh, horror movie, not the crappy ones, but maybe a good one can provide that kind of catharsis. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah, man, that's uh, that's that's really crazy. Have you ever had a role where you've played something really disturbing, you know, really out there? And have you scared yourself at some point? Have you maybe learned something about yourself that you're like, oh, my God, I didn't know I had that in me? Yes. Um, yeah. And it was Children of Sorrow, this plain mm. Father Simon, because he was written as a cult leader, cost between David Koresh and Jim Jones. So I did all my research. And then we got on set, and the director, Jordan McClure, who I think is quite brilliant, he said, I'm rewriting this character. And I said, what are you rewriting it as? And he said, you. And he started listening to me, because I talked to myself in between takes, and he started listening to that, and he would come back to me with scenes which were frighteningly close to my own personality, and I ended up playing myself, just a really bad version of myself, but all of my (laughs) flaws were there. Wow. And we had one scene where um, my character in this uh, is bisexual as a cult leader. Hmm. And uh, he abuses both the boys and the girls in his cult. They're like, they're not kids. They're like, you know, 20 years old. But one of the girls has infuriated him because she is into one of the boys. So he puts them together in a room and he forces them to make out. And you don't ever see him. You just hear his voice. And he begins being very gentle, telling them this is something they need to do for, you know, the cult. And then they're reluctant to do it, and he becomes more fierce until he's really almost a demon. It's just a disembodied voice. Wow. And they ended up crying, the, both of the actors, the boy and the girl. Wow. Um, and they were real tears. It was improv. Hmm. And I enjoyed it. Amazing. I enjoyed it, and I found myself going more and more and more to make them cry harder and harder till finally the director said cut and I was horrified because I thought what just came out of me hmm. so yeah there's those moments when you realize I need to really be careful and be kind because humans are capable of such cruelty wow amazing amazing and uh, the the trailer for that, of course, is up on YouTube. And, uh, you know, thank you for sending that over. Um, Children of Sorrow, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. The trailer looks awesome. And, um, you know, I'm going to put that up in the show notes, of course, um, for everyone to enjoy. Um, but uh, I can't wait for that to come out. What's the what's the status of that right now? Um, it's finished. Um, it's It will play at some festivals this fall, and then it will be looking for distribution. Um, it's an unusual film and that it's not a traditional genre slasher the director his motto is disturbing is the new gore and he wanted to try to do something that didn't have excessive gore but that made people skin crawl Mm. so this character father simon is essentially he's me speaking in the voice i'm speaking in now saying Corey, trust me you're at home you're a part of the family and we want you here we care about you you're safe and we're not going to hurt you. I don't know how to make you believe that we're not going to hurt you, Corey. You're a part of the family. And then, of course, horrible things happen. Wow. But a lot of the film is their trusting young, beautiful faces in the camera and my disembodied voice telling them these things and them falling for my bullshit. Man. Because we love to believe, right? I mean, yeah, humans are pretty gullible. Yeah, yeah. And you totally got me, right? I mean, you could probably tell me anything right now, and I'd be like, yeah, Bill, man, you're right. It's you're true. Right. <laughs> if you just use the right tone of voice, yeah. not offensive, it's how people sell stuff, right? You look right. at television, it's how they're selling us shit. Right. Shit we don't need. Exactly. 
I'm surrounded because, by it right now. If you didn't see my place, dude. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> they're showing us things in slow motion. I watched a commercial the other day. It was Tommy Lee Jones doing something for some financial services company. And there's Tommy Lee on the porch. And he did his bit. And I thought, okay, that's a, I could see the mountains in the background. So I said, well, okay, he's over at Universal because I recognize those mountains. That was probably a half-day work for him. <laughs> And then they do the uh, uh, the little inserts of the happy couple, like rowing in the lake. And mm. I thought, yeah, that's like Hollywood. I know right where that is. <laughs> and it's just, it's all. And then one of the people in the commercial is a woman I saw at an audition, and she's looking, she's smiling and putting flowers in her hair in slow motion. And I'm going, yeah, that's Helen. <laughs> it's just so fake. Wow. It's all so fake. I want to scream to the world, none of this is real. Mm. Under yeah. uh, appreciate it for entertainment. That's great. But understand that it's not real. Yeah. And that's key, uh, I think, being a horror fan, you know, is to be able to distinguish that and and real life and being able to completely dig, you know, these crazy horror movies that, you know, a lot of times are, are real violent or can really get inside of your head. But being able to sit back and say, this is not real. This is just entertainment. And I'm just enjoying it for what it is, and I can go and live real life as a normal, well-adjusted human being. And I'm not some kind of freak because I like these movies, but, you know, I, I love my family, I'm, I'm doing what's right, you know. And, and so I think that's really important. And uh, sometimes that's not, uh, I don't think, not distinguished, I think, by a lot of people, which is where it gets scary sometimes. We're not really good as a culture anymore about, we don't do nuance for it well. We're very black and white and very uh, antagonistic. It's got to be like one thing or another when actually I'm a big fan of uh, literature. I love one of my favorite books is by Washington Irving called Irving's Sketchbook. Mm. And it includes The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle and some other stories. And um, I was reading it like three weeks ago. I scared myself at night reading a story written in 1824. Wow. I was thinking, hey, this is great because this is really old, archaic literature and it's still effective. And B, the characters in here are so real. They're so rich. They're so full. They're not one dimensional. It made me wish that uh, classic, uh, uh, scary literature, of which there's a lot, was more well known and more disseminated. And that's why it was interesting. Before the show started, Corey was telling me about this feature on his show where he's been reading. Um, yes. What is it? Are you doing like bits of Poe and Lovecraft and things? Yeah, yeah. It's just uh, something I decided to start up. You know, it's a segment called Tales from the Electric Chair, you know, and, uh, you know, I just kind of, uh, you know, read stories that are really interesting to me that, um, you know, maybe not a lot of people have read. And of course, you know, a lot of people have read Lovecraft. But, uh, you know, the first one I did was, um, I don't know if you know the author uh, Ambrose Bierce. But, oh, of um, course I do. Which story did you do? Uh, the Damn Thing. Oh, wonderful. And um, so, you know, it's kind of, you know, not everybody, I don't think, is is aware that he did some really, really great work, you know, at the turn of the century, you know, and, and just has some great things out there, some really gripping, terrifying stories. And uh, I love to kind of bring those, you know, to more people, um, you know, to, to, you know, there's more out there than Lovecraft and Poe, and I'd love Lovecraft and Poe. But, uh, you know, there were people before this that uh, did some really great work. And um, so, yeah, and of course, other authors that are more contemporary, you know, just a wide range of things. And uh, just love to, you know, literature, that, that's really great that, uh, 
you know, you're, you're talking about your love of literature because, of, of course, you know, it all goes back to storytelling, you know, no matter whether you're writing or you're doing film or, or whatever. Um, it's all about the story and how you tell the story. And uh, that just transcends, I think, whatever medium that you happen to be working in. Um, the I story agree. is key. Yeah. I did uh, 12 years of touring theater before I ever started film. The theater was my career. Uh, I did Mark Twain. He was a great storyteller. Mm. I played JFK uh, for years up in the Northeast. I toured as JFK. was a great lover of language. And I, I still do a one-man Christmas carol. Beautiful. And I've toured with this thing to a lot of schools. And I do it in the original language, unadulterated. And when I get to Marley's Ghost, the kids' jaws drop open because they've never heard anyone speak English before. Mm. And when Marley's Ghost says... Uh, why, why did I walk through clouds of people with my eyes turned down and never lift them to that star which led the wise men to a poor abode? Were there no poor homes to which its light would have conducted me? I have come to warn you. I have come to warn you that you have one chance and one hope of escaping the path I tread. A chance and hope of my procuring Ebenezer. And when I do those little bits, the kids' jaws drop open. And one of them afterwards said to me, the schoolgirl, she said, what was that? And I said, honey, that was English. That's our language. She said, people don't talk like that. I said, well, they used to. People used to actually have complete thoughts that could not be text <laughs> texted. You couldn't fit them in a Twitter update. Right. People wrote sentences that lasted for a paragraph, and they were rich and full. And mm. it, it, they like it. But what she said, I said, she said, you know, what is that? I said, English. If people don't speak like that, I said, well, they used to. And she said, huh. She said, I wish people would talk that talk now. Wow. Because it was lyrical and beautiful and pleasing to her ears. Mm. And uh, my, so uh, my jaw just hope. dropped. Yeah, my jaw just like, dropped when you, you you did that. I just wow, wow. Thank you so much. That, that's why people used to write letters. Yes, yes. Because mm. as Mark Twain said, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. Mm. Like he would find exactly the right word that he wanted to use. And buddy, let me tell you, as a guy who reads a lot of scripts lately, there ain't a lot of people looking for exactly the right word. Mm. Oh, man. I get scripts including lines like, what are you going to do? I'm going to kill you. No, don't kill me. I'm like, really? Wow. Do we need this level of exposition? <laughs> but that's the way we talk now. We're so basic. Wow. Well, I, I'm so thankful and I, I appreciate so much that uh, you, you love language and appreciate language and value language and a little bit more exposition than you see. Uh, and, you know, so many things nowadays, like you said, um, it's just I mean, we're, we're missing that. And it is so rich. Again, why I love going back to Lovecraft. Um, you know, Lovecraft, of course, was amazing for his exposition, his use of language, words that, you know, most people, myself included, have to go look up sometimes, you know, in a dictionary. What, what does that word mean? It's wow. 
Um, it's the reason I wanted to do Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies when they mm. called me for that role. I said, do I get to do the Gettysburg Address? Is the Gettysburg Address in the script? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, no, I'll do whatever I have to do. I'll cut off a million zombie hits. I don't care. <laughs> I just let me do the Gettysburg Address on, on film once. Mm. <laughs> let yeah. me join that pantheon of actors who've done the Gettysburg Address. And they did it. It was an edited version. Yeah. But it's yeah. in there. Right. Uh, and I knew that a lot of kids, they don't learn it in school. And they might never hear it. But maybe when they watch this little zombie movie, they might pick up some great language. Yeah. I mean, even though, you know, of course, Abraham Lincoln versus zombies is kind of a revisionist, you know, sort of thing. It's somewhat historically accurate, but you change a lot of things and it's not really. But it's it, it is kind of. Um, but, uh, you know, it's kind of cool if you think that maybe, you know, a lot of young kids who don't know a lot about history and everything, they're going to, you know, pick up this movie. Of course, it's on Amazon or uh, Netflix streaming right now, instant. Um, so a lot of people are going to be able to watch this, and kids maybe watch this, and they're like, wow, Abraham Lincoln, wow, this is crazy, and maybe sort of take an interest in the, the real history and this period of time, and maybe go back and say, wow, wow, did they really have this attitude towards slaves? Wow, did... What, what was the Gettysburg Address? What, what was this battle? You know, and who was, who was, you know, Douglas? So, you know, and, and just thinking of that. So maybe you're sort of in, uh, inspiring a younger generation to maybe look into actual history through this. That's my hope, because the real Lincoln is just as interesting as one who hunted vampires or cut off zombie heads. Right. He was an ugly freak of nature who was in a hellish marriage and appeared from nowhere when the country needed him and no one but him and anybody else who was not that much of a weird outsider would have acquiesced and given the south what they wanted and lincoln wouldn't do it he didn't know anything to anybody and he believed fervently with all his heart that when you're married you're married and you don't get a divorce you suffer through it and you work it out and that's that's the way he was in his personal life and that's the way he was with the south hmm. he was he was a fascinating melancholy odd man that we would never elect today and yet he's on our money and we think right. oh we'd vote for lincoln no you would mm. no you would no no wow and i have to say you are are probably my favorite abraham lincoln that i've ever seen on the screen uh whatsoever. oh man that is saying huge huge thank you very oh, much well i mean just uh you, you sold it so well of course you got the accent the voice so as as if i i know what an accurate you know you know 19th century accent is you well, know i don't know but you sold it you know you did it and uh you made it real for me because in the midst of course this is a um i mean what do they call it a mockbuster you know the asylum yep. films and uh in the midst of sort of a silly um, not entirely serious film. Um, you know, you you really embrace this role, and you I, you really you were very serious about Lincoln within these circumstances, um, where you didn't sort of seem out of place with the seriousness that you brought to the role. Uh, I think you did it very well. But then again, I mean, just the the way you portrayed it, you took it very seriously within kind of the silly sort of framework that you are working with here. And, I pretended uh, that I was in Spielberg's movie. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I love the Hall of Presidents ever uh, since I was a kid. When I go to Disney, the first thing I want to do is go to Hall of Presidents. I still do. Uh, and I was there was no way I was going to have the chance to play Abraham Lincoln and not do the Lincoln of history. Hmm. Yeah. So 
I put my little my tiny little Lincoln up there next to Hal Holbrook and all the others. Uh, well, it's a magnificent Lincoln, I think. And and do you think you know again? Um, just to be totally honest, you know, I, I I really enjoyed Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies. I really did. Um, but you know, universally, you know, is kind of you know, it didn't get great reviews across the board. You know, people were just kind no. of you know really really panning the movie for the most part. But the thing that shined in this movie and that critics really praised was your performance. Um, so do you think, you know, given Asylum's kind of, you know, mockbuster sort of thing going on here and it's not entirely serious, yeah, it's a horror movie, but, you know, you got to kind of get what they're trying to do here, you know, in light of, um, you know, Abraham Lincoln vampire killer and, and that kind of thing. Do you think maybe just a lot of people didn't get it? They didn't understand what Asylum was really doing here? And, well, you have to enter, you have to you're dealing with a low-budget movie. Mm-hmm. The script by Richard Shankman was absolutely fantastic, and had there been a million dollars or a million five, it would have been a summer blockbuster movie, a popcorn movie. I mean, there were things written in the original script about a Gatling gun, which was a brand-new weapon, and we were mowing down zombies with Gatling guns and all these <laughs> sorts of things. But when you're dealing with a low budget, you have to watch the movie with that in mind and enter into the spirit of the thing. Mm-hmm. And no, there's going to be uh, when a movie costs 150 grand. There's going to be some corners cut, and you got to kind of go with it um, and try to have fun with it. My my motto is fun covers a multitude of sins. If the audience can have fun, yes, they're okay. But if you take it yourself too seriously, where then they're going to be harshly judgmental. Yeah. yeah. So in a low budget film, I always just try to have fun, and I like to pick titles that will stand out too, like. Abraham Lincoln vs. Zombies, great title, and it joins nude nuns with big guns on my resume. <laughs> yes. I love uh, these titles that when I saw nude nuns with big guns, it was like, get in this movie any way you can because people, <laughs> it will be talked about. <laughs> well, this again, it harkens back to kind of the golden age of films whenever they used to just sell movies as titles. Like, you know, I'm, yes. I'm thinking, I don't know if you, you know Val Luton. Um, you know, oh, hell it, yeah, the cat uh, people. Oh, the cat people! I walked with a zombie, and literally, yep. he was given a whole slate of movies, just titles, uh, yep. because they sounded good. You know, I walked with a zombie, the cat people, the, a whole slate, and he was just expected to come up with a script, come up with you know whatever, and make this movie and make them money. And uh, you know, Val Luton just hadn't, you know he ended up making some fantastic films out of uh, you know just these titles. But, you know, this kind of thing, you know, thinking, you know, titles are kind of selling the movies and then just kind of what you do with the titles, that's that's almost kind of secondary. Um, you know, that harkens back. I mean, we've been doing this for decades and decades. It's true. And today, the Hollywood that I found was not the Hollywood I thought I would find. The Hollywood I thought I would find is the Hollywood of, you know, the 1970s and 80s or the days of film. And by the time I actually got to Hollywood five years ago and started doing movies, Everything had changed because now everybody can buy a camera and everybody can make a movie. Oh, yeah. So the market's flooded. So you're right. In order to stand out, you need, um, you need something that's unusual, you know, because there's a million low-budget romantic comedies. There's a million low-budget horror films. <laughs> the market is just flooded. So anything that can help you stand out. And that's what I try to do as an actor, too, is think of myself as a product. Right. And, you know, what, what, what do I have that can stand out, that can make me different from other middle-aged guys with bad skin oh well i mean you've proven um what you can bring to the table um absolutely amazing you know is it hard to kind of weed that out i mean 
Are, are you yep. getting a lot of a lot of things? And is it uh, can you tell right away almost by the presentation or maybe by scripts that you're given or something? I mean, how yep. do you how do you figure yep. out what you should do? Right away, absolutely right away. Um, there's a role coming up in a movie, and the role the director asked me to do, and which I have contracted to do, was a father who's protecting his family, and it doesn't feel right to me, and it didn't feel right to me, and there's just something. It's just something about it that's not because, you know, the whole time he's like, please don't hurt my family. Do what you want to me, but don't hurt my family. And I just today talked to my manager about it and he made me really happy. He said, I called the director and I said, this is not Bill's brand. What else have you got? And we found another role in the movie that's much, much better for you. It was a smaller role, but since you want to do it, he's expanding it. Wow. So, yeah, you you can tell right away when you read something because I've done 80 projects now hmm. maybe two or three of them good but i've been in front of the camera enough to know there's a little sound when you're really good or when well, i wouldn't say when you're good when you're mater- when the material matches your face and everything gels the dp the director of photography will make a little like nice mm, it was hmm. good something like that they rarely say anything but when it really gels they will so those are the moments that i know okay that that's the camera guy, and he knows that's what you do well on camera. Mm. Michael Caine said the camera's your lover, and you have to touch her the way she wants to be touched, or she'll never want you to touch her again, and that's very true. Ooh, yeah, and you got a hungry lover. Yeah, and you got to look at her. I mean, you got to you got to give her those eyes. You know, you got the, the way that she wants you to look at her. Yeah, because if you delude yourself and say, "Oh, well, you know, I can play the hero guy, and here's my hero look." the camera will turn away because mm. it'll say you're lying. That's not the truth of you. I know the truth of you. Mm. And you, you are, you the, better huh. give me the truth. And you are the master of saying a million words again, just with your eyes and just again, with a tilt of the head with, you know, just, just little nuances. I mean, you, you just say, can't oh, lie. Yeah. You have to, you, you just can't lie. So if you're playing something that's really not in you or you can't find it in you, it'll show up in your eyes. Hmm. But I love doing the beast, the, the the werewolf short, because this was a guy who was conflicted, and I know conflicted really well yeah. from my personal life, and it's waters that I'm really comfortable swimming in. Anytime I get a character that's conflicted, because I'm analytical by nature, you know, and I'm always thinking of pros and cons and sides, so I'm used to that. And uh, this character had to go back and forth between do I kill my son? I know he's a werewolf, but maybe I can just get past it one more time, hmm. and and that kind of conflict, it's. Uh, it's good to play something that relates to who you are as a human being. Yeah, and and you speak to that in every role that you do. You know, no matter if the if the movie is is a little weaker or it's 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 a great movie, it, it doesn't matter. But um, you you're very much bringing that element to it, that very um, a, a visceral sort of thing that I feel more than I see. Um, you know, and I, I love what you said. You know, you, you just worked. You know, again with the the director who is. You know, so much of the philosophy that gore, gore is cheap. It doesn't work anymore. We have to go for more of, you know, getting inside your head. And, yeah. and um, for me, that's where horror has always been. It's those movies that, that just stick with me and get inside my brain. And I can't forget about for like weeks and weeks and months and then years. I mean, I can still remember, you know, I, I still remember the very first time I saw Night of the Living Dead when I was uh. like six years old. You know, and it has stuck with me throughout, you know, the, the 30 years since. 
And why um, was it so creepy, especially the first scene in the graveyard? Oh, man. When I saw it as a kid, I was genuinely scared. Yeah. Maybe because they're so isolated and there's nobody around, which, of course, was because it was low budget. Now I know mm. that they just went up there with a camera <laughs> and they didn't have any extras. <laughs> right, right. But the, the fact that they're so alone and, and then comes this creature, it's more frightening to me than a zombie horde. Yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, you know... I could get into the whole, you know, you know, fast zombie versus slow zombie thing and, you know, just one zombie versus a million zombies. But, you know, it, it's uh, to me, I, I think you 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 touched on it really well. It's that it's that um, these things are basically people, regular looking people. They're normal. Maybe somebody, you know, but yes. uh, they're, they're just going to creep up on you no matter where you are. And they're going to try to devour you. They're going to try to eat you, tear you apart. You, you just made me think, and I never thought of it this way before, but maybe that's why the early zombies were so effective, because isn't that a metaphor for how we deal with each other? I mean, we think we know people, mm. and we let them into our lives. Right, right. But we can never really know anybody else, and maybe they will devour us, if not literally, then figuratively. Mm. Yeah. They look like people that we know, or are you, you know, you're in relationships with people, and you think you know them, and then they've changed Right. When you get really, changed. really close to them, then yeah. do they change? Do they all of a sudden... There I go analyzing again. Sorry. It's this is I brilliant. Do. Bill, this is this is awesome. This is... Uh, I'm totally there. And I'm, I'm a huge, huge zombie fan. I, you know, zombies scare me more than any other creature, any other horror. Um, I've been a zombie fan, you know, of course, ever since I saw Night of the Living Dead. And I think right around that time is when I, I saw Michael Jackson's Thriller. You know, mm. and it uh, scared me for the same reasons. Yeah, I think uh, zombies just speak to me and frighten me so much more because of that. I mean, no matter where you are, and it's it's the slow ones again. That, you know, no matter where you are, man, they're gonna get you eventually. You know, you can hold yourself up, you can you can defend yourself, but it's not just gonna be one or two or you know a few of them. Eventually, they're gonna come back, and there's gonna be like a hundred or five hundred or a thousand of these things banging their way in and they're gonna get you because um, that's death death is yeah. omnipresent and death never stops people never stop dying mm. i often reflect on that in this city because i'm in los angeles where there's some six to ten million people in the area mm. and at night you know also my prayers when i go to bed and I, I think how do you pray for a city where every variety of human experience is probably happening right now at this moment, someone's dying. At this moment, someone's being born. At this moment, someone's being killed. Someone's heart is being broken. Someone's finding joy. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming, really, when you think about it. Yeah. And death in particular, that in a city of this size, how many people must die each night? Wow. And some die alone because there are a lot of lonely people in cities and they die by themselves with no one there with them and it makes it sadder and more horrible death is just a bitch yeah oh yeah and i think death that, is a real uh, bitch the zombie movie just i think really sums that up um mm. really uh, speaks to that more than any other horror subgenre um and it, it's so much deeper for me and yeah because it says you can't get away from death Right. Interesting. Right. And it, it, it might be my mom. You know, it might be, you know, my wife, you know, yes. that, that it, uh, brings that on me. I just, you, you never know. Um, and uh, yeah. So, of course, 
Abraham Lincoln versus zombies. I, I jumped all over it and really enjoyed it as a zombie film. Are you are you a zombie fan? I mean, dude, are, would you consider yourself a zombie movie kind of guy? Or um, as far as horror I, goes, what do you think? Where are I you? do. I, I wasn't until The Walking Dead. And then mm-hmm. that great, great mass scene of the zombies in the streets of Atlanta won me back for zombies. Beautiful. Of course, those are the type of zombies that I like now or you know, sort of the walking dead zombies and I'll go for either night of the living dead zombies or walking dead zombies, Hmm. but the stuff in between the sort of theatrical painted ones that are not really frightening. Don't get that much for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, We get a lot of kind of white faced, you know, dark circles under the eyes. Kind of. Yeah. Covered with blood. That's that's what always happens on low budget horror films. God knows I've worked that movie many, many times over and they'll just say, we don't have time to finish the makeup or even, I don't have enough materials to finish the makeup. You didn't give me enough materials to paint all these zombies. Just put some blood on them. Just throw blood on them. It'll be fine. Amazing. Amazing. So, no, The Walking Dead does it right. And actually, Abraham Lincoln versus Zombies had some great, great looking zombies in it. Um, The look, I think, was really fantastic the way they did, you know, a lot of the eyes. And um, one of the first zombies we see as, you know, Abe Lincoln as a child, as a, a, you know, a, a kid. Um, he's up in the attic. He goes up there and, um, what is it? His mom is, uh, yeah, she's zombified. She's there chained to the wall. I liked and, her. I liked her. Yeah. Look. And I also like the look of the, the kid who played, I thought he's a really good actor too, who played the first one that Lincoln encountered. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Because both of those zombies had the, the white eyes. They had the, the right. contacts. Right. But on a low budget film, you don't have enough context for everybody. Oh so. uh, yeah. Yeah. And that was, of course, Again, this is going to show the marks of a low-budget film, and not everything is going to be 100% perfect, and I could nitpick it as far as, you know, the, the CGI, and you know, but I'm not going to do that um, because, again, it was fun, and I got it for what they were trying to do. And again, you, you swept me away. I mean, Abe Lincoln swept me away on this film, and uh, that was... I still uh, have my elevator shoes. <laughs> I just saw an interview you did on... Um, it was a video podcast you did with Zombie. Um, oh, what was it? It was a it was a great show. Sur- survived, it's called. Yeah, survived. And yeah. Uh, you went into uh, the Stiletto Hills and everything, and um, <laughs> you know it, that was brilliant. And I I'll, I'll probably put a link up to that actually in the show notes so they can really get a feel for um, the kind of things. Because again, you're you're not a tall guy, although you kind of pulled it off somehow, and and. This movie because uh, it was five nine, and then I had these shoes. They're called Toto, T O T O, and I had the highest ones they make, which gives you an extra five inches. But pretty much your feet are at a ninety degree angle. Oh my god! And then I got a couple extra inches that I needed to get to Lincoln Six Four by a little platform that they made. That was a running platform that I would walk along. Man, man. Um, so you're walking on your toes on top of a <laughs> box you're balanced on. Oh my god. And so I, I watched it, you know, there are a lot of scenes where you're running. And, um, yeah. but again, I think you sold it really well because I saw Abe Lincoln, you know, and historically most people know him as a tall, lanky kind of guy. And there were a couple scenes where you were running and it was almost kind of a, a limp, you know, almost kind of a. Yeah, I made something. him run, a loping run because Lincoln yeah. said his feet always hurt. Yeah. He had, um, I don't know the condition, name of the condition, you know, you can look it up, but it's, he had, his hands and feet were very, very, very large mm-hmm. and they didn't get good circulation. He constantly complained that his feet hurt and when he walked, he did walk. They, people said he walked like an ape. 
And, and that's I, where I had that gate. Exactly. And you did that well, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you were sort of, you know, aided by the fact that you were <laughs> on top of these ridiculous See? things on your feet. That's how God works things out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, so, um, but man, man, you just, you do great work and I, I'm very appreciative of, uh, of what you bring to the genre because, uh, I found some really interesting things that some websites had to um, say about you here. And I just, I would like to hear your response, you know, because these are some big things. Um, Dread Central said, if there existed an Academy Award for Best Performance by an actor in a B-movie, this year's winner would easily be Bill Oberst Jr. And uh, HorrorMovies.ca said that you are the future of horror. And when you hear these kind of things, and of course, you know, I've been praising your performances across the board. What is your response? Man, these, these reviews that are just like off the charts. You What's your thinking? Everything, you have to take everything with a grain of salt. Um, because I've only been doing movies for four and a half years. I only did my first film four and a half years. The rest was stage, but acting's all I've ever done. And I'm looking right now on my desk. I have uh, pictures of Boris Karloff. And of Lon Chaney and Vincent Price. And those are kind of like my horror heroes. Mm. Um, and I've read biographies of all three of them. And none of them ever felt that they had made it. They never felt successful. Mm. Um, what was it? Um, it was a guy named David Brinkley. Brinkley was a commentator for one of the networks back when I was growing up and I read an autobiography of Brinkley and he said something always stuck with me. He won a huge, maybe an Emmy or Peabody Award or something. But he said, uh, he said, what do you think about it? And um, he said, praise is nice as long as you don't drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> so that's, that's the way it is mm -hmm. because if people say nice things about you, then it's, it does, you know what it does? It gives you a responsibility Mm. Because then you think, okay, people really are expecting me to do decent work. And Karloff said that he was on a trip in Ireland two years after Frankenstein had came out, and he was in a very small, isolated town in Ireland. And a guy came up to him on the street and said, Frankenstein. And that's when it hit him that people all over the world were watching what he was doing. And he said, I thought to myself, I've got to start doing better scripts. Because people are watching. It was a revelation. Hmm. And that makes me think that, too. Because as an actor, you know, you do stuff that's just for the money. But since people have been saying these nice things, it makes me think, I don't want to let people down by doing something that I know is going to be crappy. Oh. Hmm. And you balance that with needing to eat. Wow. And I, but I, what did Billy, Billy Joel wrote a great song called The Entertainer? Ah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, he says, I am the entertainer, the idol of my age. I make all kind of money when I go on the stage. Today I am the champion. I may win your hearts. But I know the game, and you'll forget my name, and I won't be here in another year if I don't stay on the charts. <laughs> oh, Bill, I am hoping you're going to be around for a long, long time, man, because I am so enjoying you, your work, even just talking with you. I mean, I could I could talk with you all night, man. I mean, this is, uh, this is so you, much fun. And, if there's uh, room in the world for a latter-day Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney, Vincent Price, then I'll stay around. Yes. If there's not room for that, then I'll just go into 
the the dustbin of uh, sideshow oddities of horror history. No, thank you for keeping that alive. And uh, again, you know, just by watching uh, Anatomy of Fear, um, that's some of the first things that come up. You know, is is the the references to Lon Chaney and to Boris Karloff, where you know Lon Chaney, man, he could do so much visually, and that's that's your thing, man, the visual element. You know, and uh, you take so much of that from Lon Chaney where he could communicate so much visually. And, um, I mean, even go into how much he could change his appearance and what he did with yes. makeup and special effects and, and all that thing. But, um, you know, I can, I can totally see you're, you're kind of like a modern-day Lon Chaney here. Um, you've totally I hope got so. That. And I hope he doesn't – if that happens, I hope he doesn't kick my ass when I get to heaven. <laughs> You know what I would really like, Corey? When I was a kid, I had posters of Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney and all of whom I had discovered through Famous Monsters magazine. I would never know they existed because they were before my time. But I read Famous Monsters and I ordered these posters and I had them up over my bed. And I remember going to sleep with this classic picture of Dracula over my head with uh, Lugosi, you know, his hands out and uh, staring right into you. And I used to look at that before I go to bed. And I remember thinking, maybe one day I'll grow up and people will have posters of me over their bed and it'll scare them. That would be the sweetest thing wow. in the world. That would be the sweetest thing in the world. If some mother came in like my mother did and said, take that thing off the wall. And it was a poster of me. That would be so awesome. Wow. I think you're there, man. I think you are. If if you're not there right now, you are just like on the road you're on the like threshold because i i totally agree you know the quotes that i read uh you are everything that horror is about and i thank you for that thank you for well, you, sticking with i that. thank you for giving me inspiration to keep going because this is a tough ass business mm. yeah. it's a tough business if i had known how hard film would be i would have stayed my ass on the east coast and stayed on stage but i'm glad i didn't know because i'm glad i came hmm yeah, but yeah. it's uh, it's it's a tough business. That's what I've heard. I mean, from a lot of people, you know, you included, you don't do it for the money. You know, um, no. at this point, it's 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 really rough to make. Sometimes you get paid well, and sometimes you don't, and you have to balance out those times, pick the right projects, and you have heartbreaking things like a a project gets done and then it ends up on the shelf because there's some legal dispute, and it's mm. just as you, there's so much that's completely out of your control. Yeah. But I just remember always that I'm a horror fan myself, and so I guess if I only do stuff that I would really like to see, then I'll be fine. Like they say, if you're a writer, write for yourself. Yeah. So I would say to any horror fans who may be listening, and I can't speak for any of my past body of work, but starting now, <laughs> starting now, from today forward, I will only do things that I would want to see as a fan, so I'll only do good uh, stuff. Well, Now watch that come back to bite me in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. You were you were very sincere. You're, um, I think, very down to earth, and and uh, you know, you just, I think, you do do what you love, and you you take on things that you think that you're going to be able to to really do right and uh, do your best. And everything I've seen, I haven't been disappointed with. And of course, you know, again, we we've, we've talked about you got your ups and downs, and the good and the bad, and that's every actor. But. Uh, I just really appreciate your attitude, your your passion for the genre, your passion for storytelling, and just just really being true to who you are, embracing who you are, and just putting that out there on the table for the rest of the world to see. Because 
Again, dude, you are bearing your soul. I mean, every every time you're on film, every time that you uh, you you speak anything, you are opening yourself up to everybody, um, to the haters, to the lovers, to anybody, and uh, you have to kind of bear all of that, uh, you know, feedback and criticism on yourself for doing that, and that's a tough. You just thing. hit it. Yeah. You just hit it. That's what I think the difference between a movie star and a character actor. And I don't want to be a character actor. I've been a character actor on stage for years, and it's great. But but to, to be a movie star, you have to have, what is it, the confidence, the stupidity, I don't know what it is, <laughs> to open up your soul and to be naked in front of the audience. Yeah. And to put the most embarrassing parts of yourself and your personality and the worst parts of yourself as well as the best parts, to put it all out there and say, hey, what do you think? Uh, and yeah, that's 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 what it is. So if there's a good performance, usually it's because somebody's revealed some part of themselves. Hmm. I just saw the master, and um, I was just marveling at hmm. Joaquin Phoenix in that, hmm. and what he had done. And it was not an attractive performance. He doesn't look good in it. He looks. It's really hard to look at him as he works in there, but he gave himself so fully to that character and revealed all of those parts of himself that I'm sure as a movie star, you don't really want to reveal. Uh, it was absolutely brilliant. Mm. So that's what I aspire to do. Well, thank you for that. Um, I really appreciate that. I acknowledge that you're doing that and, uh, it's really, really hard a lot of times and, uh, it's not appreciated a lot of times, you know, and, uh, you take a lot of, of hard criticism but uh, you just keep going with it. You keep making movies. And you keep doing it. You keep uh, just being great at what you're uh, gifted with. And uh, I, as well as thousands, millions of people out there right now, um, we really, really enjoy what you do and really appreciate it. So thank you, Bill. It's awesome. Thanks, Corey. You, you, you made my day by talking to you. Thanks wow. for what you do with the electric chair. Oh, well, absolutely. It's It's the least I can do for... A, a, a fantastic genre that we have here and fantastic people like you that make this genre fantastic. So man, we can find you at billoberst.com. Um, and of course that and the IMDB and a, a whole ton of other links that, uh, yeah, or, and uh, drop me an email. I answer eventually. Yeah. At, yeah. It's a uh, bill at gmail.com. And thank I love you to hear. I love to hear from fans or people who have ideas for horror movies or, if people got a criticism or so, I really like to keep in touch with people because then you're not, you know, so isolated. Like yeah. maybe some kid in Kansas has an idea for the next Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. And you're, you're very approachable. And, and, and again, I, I thank you for your quick response on, you know, I just uh, I got on your website. And, of course, I was talking with Peter and and I was like, man, Bill, it's a, he's a fantastic guy. I got to I got to just, you know, see if I can talk to him. If you just have a few minutes to, you know, speak with me and stuff. And you were more than kind, more than, you know, prompt and, and, uh, getting back to me and, and stuff and coming on the show. So that means oh, a lot. Oh, hell, Corey, people call me in the grocery store. People get my <laughs> phone number off various things. I'm seriously, I'm in the grocery store and somebody calls and says, Hey, this is Mary. I'm in Nova Scotia. And I say, well, Hey Mary, how you doing? And she says, this bill. I say, yeah, it sure is. <laughs> and she says, well, I just watched so-and-so, so-and-so, and I want to tell you so-and-so, so-and-so. Wow. And I said, well, Mary, I do appreciate it. I'm in line right now for groceries, so let me hit you back when I get out. 
<laughs> but I think it's great that in today's world that we can communicate with each other like that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that, just thank you, because believe me, just from experience, I've been podcasting a lot of years here, man. And uh, you are you are uh, such a, you know, it's sort of a ray of hope, you know, it's such a, you know, a, a, a shining spot here. And, you know, as far as, you know, horror actors and um, people that are making films right now, because um, I don't know, it's, it's just uh not a whole lot of people are as approachable and as just, you know, friendly, I guess, as you are. And it's uh, very much appreciated. Very cool. Happy to be working, man. Always happy to be working. Oh, man. Well, of course, uh, all great things have to come to an end. And, uh, man, it has been great speaking with you tonight. And, again, I appreciate everything that you've done. All the links are going to be up here on the show notes. And, uh, Bill, man, you're, you're of course... We haven't even touched on what you're working on now that's going to you know, be coming out here at some point soon. But uh, you can check out the IMDb just to get a taste for the, what, like 20 things you have that are uh, coming out here on the horizon. I mean, it's amazing. You know what I'm going to do when I hang up with you? <laughs> I'm going to find a booth, babe, for the Rapture Horror Expo, which I'm doing in Mesa, Arizona this coming weekend. Because when you look like I do, you need a little eye candy. <laughs> <laughs> so I got a Craigslist ad up on Phoenix Craigslist right now looking for a booth, babe, Ooh. to come and hang out at my booth. And um, so I'll be perusing pictures of the booth, babes. And I did a Google image search. I have never had a booth, babe, before. But I just Google image search for booth, babe. And some of them really fit the description. Hmm. So, yeah. So I'll be looking forward to seeing exactly what... <laughs> responses like i'm paying them and it's all above board nice but yes nice for a booth babe so all right electric chair to booth babes hopefully dude we can we can talk again soon man thank you man i really enjoyed it all right thank you okay Corey. bye <laughs> electric chair dagon by hp lovecraft i'm writing this under an appreciable mental strain since by tonight, I shall be no more. Penniless, and at the end of my supply of the drug, which alone makes life endurable, I can bear the torture no longer, and shall cast myself from this great garret window into the squalid street below. Do not think, from my slavery to morphine, that I am a weakling or a degenerate. When you have read these hastily scrawled pages, you may guess, though never fully realize, why it is that I must have forgetfulness or death. It was in one of the most open and least frequented parts of the broad Pacific that the packet of which I was supercargo fell a victim to the German Sea Raider. The Great War was then at its very beginning, and the ocean forces of the Hun had not completely sunk to their later degradation, so that our vessel was made a legitimate prize, whilst we of her crew were treated with all the fairness and consideration due us as naval prisoners. So liberal indeed was the discipline of our captors that five days after we were taken I managed to escape alone in a small boat with water and provisions for a good length of time. When I finally found myself adrift and free, I had but little idea of my surroundings. Never a competent navigator, I could only guess vaguely by the sun and stars that I was somewhat south of the equator. Of the longitude I knew nothing, and no island or coastline was in sight. The weather kept fair, and for uncounted days I drifted aimlessly beneath the scorching sun, waiting either for some passing ship or to be cast on the shores of some habitable land. But neither ship nor land appeared, 
and I began to despair in my solitude upon the heaving vastness of unbroken blue. The change happened whilst I slept. Its details I shall never know, for my slumber, though troubled and dream-infested, was continuous. When at last I awaked, it was to discover myself half-sucked into a slimy expanse of hellish black mire which extended about me in monotonous undulations as far as I could see, and in which my boat lay grounded some distance away. Though one might well imagine that my first sensation would be of wonder at so prodigious and unexpected a transformation of scenery, I was in reality more horrified than astonished. For there was in the air and in the rotting soil a sinister quality which chilled me to the very core. The region was putrid with the carcasses of decaying fish and of other less describable things which I saw protruding from the nasty mud of the unending plain. Perhaps I should not hope to convey in mere words the unutterable hideousness that can dwell in absolute silence and barren immensity. There was nothing within hearing, and nothing in sight save a vast reach of black slime. Yet the very completeness of the stillness and the homogeneity of the landscape oppressed me with a nauseating fear. The sun was blazing down from a sky which seemed to me almost black in its cloudless cruelty, as though reflecting the inky marsh beneath my feet. As I crawled into the stranded boat, I realized that only one theory could explain my position. Through some unprecedented volcanic upheaval, a portion of the ocean floor must have been thrown to the surface, exposing regions which for innumerable millions of years had lain hidden under unfathomable watery depths. So great was the extent of the new land which had risen beneath me that I could not detect the faintest noise of the surging ocean, strain my ears as I might nor were there any sea-fowl to prey upon the dead things. For several hours I sat thinking or brooding in the boat, which lay upon its side and afforded a slight shade as the sun moved across the heavens. As the day progressed, the ground lost some of its stickiness and seemed likely to dry sufficiently for traveling purposes in a short time. That night I slept but little, and the next day I made for myself a pack containing food and water preparatory to an overland journey in search of the vanished sea and possible rescue. On the third morning, I found the soil dry enough to walk upon with ease. The odor of the fish was maddening, but I was much too concerned with graver things to mind so slight an evil, and set out boldly for an unknown goal. All day I forged steadily westward, guided by a faraway hummock which rose higher than any other elevation on the rolling desert. That night I encamped, and on the following day still traveled toward the hummock, though that object seemed scarcely nearer than when I had first espied it. By the fourth evening I attained the base of the mound, which turned out to be much higher than it had appeared from a distance, an intervening valley setting it out in sharper relief from the general surface. Too weary to ascend, I slept in the shadow of the hill. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night, but ere the waning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Such visions as I had experienced were too much for me to endure again, and in the glow of the moon I saw how unwise I had been to travel by day. Without the glare of the parching sun, my journey would have cost me less energy. Indeed, I now felt quite able to perform the ascent which had deterred me at sunset. Picking up my pack, I started for the crest of the eminence. I have said that the unbroken monotony of the rolling plain was a source of vague horror to me, but I think my horror was greater when I gained the summit of the mound and looked down the other side into an immeasurable pit or canyon whose black recesses the moon had not yet soared high enough to illumine. I felt myself on the edge of the world, peering over the rim 
into a fathomless chaos of eternal night. Through my terror ran curious reminiscences of Paradise Lost and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of darkness. As the moon climbed higher in the sky, I began to see that the slopes of the valley were not quite so perpendicular as I had imagined. Ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easy footholds for a descent, whilst after a drop of a few hundred feet, the declivity became very gradual. Urged on by an impulse which I cannot definitely analyze, I scrambled with difficulty down the rocks and stood on the gentler slope beneath, gazing into the Stygian deeps where no light had yet penetrated. All at once my attention was captured by a vast and singular object on the opposite slope, which rose steeply about a hundred yards ahead of me, an object that gleamed whitely in the newly bestowed rays of the ascending moon. That it was merely a gigantic piece of stone, I soon assured myself, but I was conscious of a distinct impression that its contour and position were not altogether the work of nature. A closer scrutiny filled me with sensations I cannot express, for despite its enormous magnitude, and its position in an abyss which had yawned at the bottom of the sea since the world was young, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange object was a well-shaped monolith whose massive bulk had known the workmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures, dazed and frightened, yet not without a certain thrill of the scientist's or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. The moon, now near the zenith, shone weirdly and vividly above the towering steeps that hemmed in the chasm, and revealed the fact that a far-flung body of water flowed at the bottom, winding out of sight in both directions, and almost lapping my feet as I stood on the slope. Across the chasm, the wavelets washed the bath of the Cyclopean monolith, on whose surface I could now trace both inscriptions and crude sculptures. The writing was in a system of hieroglyphics unknown to me, and unlike anything I had ever seen in books, consisting for the most part of conventionalized aquatic symbols such as fishes, eels, octopi, crustaceans, mollusks, whales, and the like. Several characters obviously represented marine things which are unknown to the modern world, but whose decomposing forms I had observed on the ocean-risen plain. It was the pictorial carving, however, that did most to hold me spellbound. Plainly visible across the intervening water on account of their enormous size, were an array of bas-reliefs whose subjects would have excited the envy of Adore. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shewn disporting like fishes in the waters of some marine grotto, or paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves as well. Of their faces and forms I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the imagination of a Poe or a Bulwer, they were damnably human in general outline, despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes, and other features less pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, they seemed to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shewn in the act of killing a whale represented as but little larger than himself. I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange size, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary gods of some primitive fishing or seafaring tribe, some tribe whose last descendant had perished eras before the first ancestor of the Piltdown or Neanderthal man was born. Awestruck at this unexpected glimpse into a past beyond the conception of the most daring anthropologist, I stood musing whilst the moon cast queer reflections on the silent channel before me. Then I suddenly saw it. With only a slight churning to mark its rise on the surface, 
the thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast, Polyphemus-like, and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith, about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms, the while it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds. I think I went mad then. Of my frantic ascent of the slope and cliff, and of my delirious journey back to the stranded boat, I remember little. I believe I sang a great deal, and laughed oddly when I was unable to sing. I have indistinct recollections of a great storm sometime after I reached the boat. At any rate, I know that I heard peals of thunder and other tones which nature utters only in her wildest moods. When I came out of the shadows, I was in a San Francisco hospital, brought thither by the captain of the American ship which had picked up my boat mid-ocean. In my delirium I had said much, but found that my words had been given scant attention. Of any land upheaval in the Pacific, my rescuers knew nothing. Nor did I deem it necessary to insist upon a thing which I knew they could not believe. Once I sought out a celebrated ethnologist and amused him with peculiar questions regarding the ancient Philistine legend of Dagon, the fish god, but soon perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional, I did not press my inquiries. It is at night, especially when the moon is gibbous and waning, that I see the thing. I tried morphine, but the drug has given only transient surcease, and that has drawn me into its clutches as a hopeless slave. So now I am to end it all having written a full account for the information or the contemptuous amusement of my fellow men. Often I ask myself if it could not all have been a pure phantasm, a mere freak of fever as I lay sun-stricken and raving in the open boat after my escape from the German man-of-war. This I ask myself, but ever does there come before me a hideously vivid vision in reply. I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshipping their ancient stone idols, and carving their own detestable likenesses on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of a day when they may rise above the billows to drag down in their reeking talons the remnants of puny, war-exhausted mankind, of a day when the land shall sink, and the dark ocean floor shall ascend amidst universal pandemonium. The end is near. I hear a noise at the door as of some immense slippery body lumbering against it. It shall not find me. God, that hand! The window! The window! We got this, man! We got this by the ass! There we go. It's an end uh, to a fantastic show. Man, did I have a lot of fun this week. I have fun every week, but this week was super sweet. Super awesome. Uh, thank you to Peter Dukes from Dream Seekers Productions. Um, you you got to check them out. The links are going to be up in the show notes. Um, like I said, you can watch a ton of his shorts up on his website and also on YouTube. Um, so, yeah, definitely, definitely. And thank you, of course, to Bill Oberst Jr., um, one of my favorite new actors out there right now. Everything I've seen him in, he's been solid. He's been awesome. Um, he's, he's been in movies that weren't so great, but he was awesome in the not-so-great movies. So, uh, man, <laughs> great guy, great guy. And, uh, of course, you'll as you've heard, one of the most friendliest uh, guys out there, you know, let alone actors. I mean, just people in general. Um, I felt really, really comfortable talking with them and we went places, man. We, we got pretty deep and it was awesome. It was awesome. So thank you to Mr. Oberst. And of course, you're going to want to check out his website and uh, go on his IMDb and, and look at what he's done and what he is doing. There's like a hundred billion things listed on his IMDb and, and there are just like dozens 
that are like upcoming in post-production, you know, on their way to the, to the store sale. So, uh, man, man, he's a hardworking guy and he deserves every bit of support that we can give him. So there you go. All the links will be up at electricchairshow.com. Of course, remember, I'm only going to give you another week to enter the Spine VHS giveaway. Thank you to my friends at Voltra Video. Oh, yeah. So just let me know through email, through a website, uh, through Twitter, Facebook, whatever you want to do. Give me a call if you got my number. Maybe you don't. Uh, I do have a feedback number. Nobody's been calling the, the, the voicemail line, which is just as well um, because time is short. But I do encourage you to call because I will play it and I will respond on the show. Um, that number, again, I, I just don't know it. I got to look it up. Um, 206-337-5096. There it is. So thanks once again for listening. Thank you to my guests. Thank you, everybody, for everything. Yeah. All right. I'll be back next week. Bye. a dragonfly, they are the worst. 
can't say anything more. 